It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. This week, I'm in the studio on my own with Professor Sharon Bessel, tragically out of action. She is unfortunately unable to speak, and I know how devastated she is to be missing today's discussion for reasons that will become increasingly clear to you. Firstly, just brief reflections on last week's show. We spoke last week with Siobhan McDonald and George Carter, both of whom work at ANU. We spoke about Australia's re-engagement with the Pacific Islands and the sorts of things that we can learn from diplomacy with Pacific Island countries. We recorded that episode before Foreign Minister Wong travelled to Samoa and Tonga, and I know that the episode's discussion is one that I will go back to many times in the months ahead as the Australian relationship with the Pacific grows and evolves. I was particularly struck by George Carter's reflections on oceanic diplomacy and the ways in which we can both listen and speak with communities. So today's discussion, I know, is one that would be so much enjoyed by Sharon Bessel, and I'm absolutely delighted to bring today's discussion to you all. The new Australian parliament looks to be the most gender diverse in the country's history, with women making up approximately 40% of the House of Representatives and over half of the Australian Senate. As one of our guests today wrote, in what was arguably one of the country's most blokey electoral campaigns, it appears Australian voters wanted something different. This result came in the wake of what's been described as a reckoning in Australian politics in 2021, after a raft of allegations of bullying, harassment and violence against women came out of Parliament House. So today on the pod, we will talk about what this federal election means for women in politics and for parliament as a workplace. We will explore what greater diversity could mean for policymaking and for progress on gender equality across Australia. And to guide us through the issues today, we have two quite remarkable guests. Yasmin Poole is a public speaker, board director and youth advocate who's passionate about ensuring that young people have a place in Australia's political conversations. Yasmin is Plan International's National Ambassador and an advocate for girls' rights to be recognised around the world. She has been a commentator on Australian television programs such as Q&A, The Drum and The Project and appeared on one of the live shows for our sister show, Democracy Sausage, in the lead-up to the federal election. Named as one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence and 40 Under 40 Asian Australians, Yasmin is a 2022 Rhodes Scholar and a recent graduate from the Australian National University. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And Sonia Palmieri. Over the last 15 years, Sonia has worked across academic development and parliamentary institutions, principally with the interest of understanding and improving women's political leadership and participation. Sonia has driven the international research agenda on gender-sensitive parliaments. She was a contributor to Australia's Set the Standard report, also known as the Jenkins Review into Parliamentary Workplaces. Sonia is currently the Gender Policy Fellow at the ANU Department of Pacific Affairs. It's great to have you with us. Welcome, Sonia. It's a delight and a pleasure to have been asked. Thanks for having me. So much looking forward to today's discussion with the two of you. And I'd like to start just by asking you about Australia's new parliament. 
Our new parliament is the most diverse in our country's history, with more women in cabinet than ever before. The first female Indigenous cabinet minister, the first female cabinet minister with a Muslim background, and a whole class of female independents in the crossbench. I'd love to hear from both of you what you think this might mean for Australian politics. Sonia, can we start with you? Uh, Thanks, Anna Greta. I think it means that Australians decided they wanted to see themselves reflected in the parliament and that they recognised that they hadn't been reflected in the parliament um, for way too long. And not only just, I think, on a descriptive representation level, um, which is really how we, we are starting to have this discussion at the moment, but also I think it signals um, Australia's entry into broader discussions around substantive representation whereby we get decision-making that is a lot more representative of the diverse needs and interests of our community. Uh, it's been a long time coming, so, so it's obviously very welcome. Yeah. Yasmin, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well on on what this means for Australian politics and and perhaps following on from Sonia's comments there, whether you think that there's likely to be a different approach to policy development with our more diverse parliament. I think back to when I recently um, visited parliament before the election happened and as I was walking around and looking at the walls, it was still the vast majority of portraits were of white men, which was you know, the group who has been in politics since its very beginning. So to see now fresh faces that are diverse and not just women but many women of colour and many um, individuals who have riveting and diverse stories, it's almost a pinch me moment as someone who has been pushing for representation for so long to finally see some momentum. And, you know, what I think it shows me is that, you know, it's not just the Australian people who have made this decision. It's also that parties, at least on the more progressive side, have un- have started, it seems, to understand the importance of diversity, at least in the people they're putting forward. Um, because I think, you know, many of the diverse candidates were also selected. And I, and I think that's really fantastic because I think, you know, what last year with March for Justice and pre- previous movements like Black Lives Matter have shown is that it, it's not just people marching for the sake of it, it's people demanding justice and also people wanting representation and that voice in decision-making spaces. So finally, I think we've, we're a step closer there and it, it's just a really, really wonderful feeling. Mm, I really like that phrase, a pinch me moment. Um, at this last election, Al, the Liberal Party lost seats in its traditional heartland as part of a wave of community-backed independence uh, had success. Five high-profile male Liberal Party MPs from the moderate wing of the party particularly lost their seats to highly credentialed female independents. What sort of lessons do you think there are to learn for the conservative side of politics in Australia for, from this experience of the last election? Yasmin? Well, I think first of all, what it seemed like the the conservative side, the liberals and the nationals and also the media were trying to push is that, you know, this is status quo politics, everyday politics, the same kind of talking points we'd heard before the pandemic. But actually what many Australians voted on this year was climate change. And that was something that absolutely was not the focus of even both major parties, I would say. So I think it did take them by surprise that so many people were looking around them and thinking, you know, you really have to do something. So I think what it is, is first of all, a frustration, a frustration that, um, you know, we know what's going on. We're not stupid. We know that, you know, things like climate change is happening rapidly and that we need action and we can't just sit on our laurels. Um, you know, also something that the international community has been pressuring Australia over repeatedly and, and us seen, being seen as an international laggard. Also things like women's rights, which there was so much frustration about how that was handled, including with last year, and integrity. So I think all of these things are uh, are, a, are a response to seeing our representatives, which should represent us, dragging our feet and pretending like nothing is going wrong and us being switched on and aware enough to see that something is 
going wrong. Um, so I, so it is really interesting to see that especially the independents were supported rather than, you know, pre-existing political parties. But I, I do think that's coming out of that feeling that things weren't happening and we want to see that happening now. So, um, you know, I do, I do think it ultimately is a, is a big wake-up call that the electorates are listening and carefully listening to not just words but also action. Mm. Uh, Sonia, what are your, your thoughts on the lessons that the conservative side of politics might learn from, from the experience of this election? I think there are two two issues there. The first is um, what I like to call the party machine. So I think the Liberal Party certainly has to learn about how it runs its pre-selections. And I think um, the way in which it has generally tended to expect that Women uh, running for the party probably need to run a few times to really demonstrate their own capacity to win a seat. Um, And I think that this election has shown that if you say that to women, they'll go elsewhere to run. And I think that's really an important lesson, uh, certainly for the Liberal Party, but I think more broadly about parties everywhere, that women aren't just going to wait for men to continue to say, it's not your time yet, let's have a bit more patience. Um, And I think that has been a consistent message from that party machine. Also that community and local branches can make those decisions about who really is the best candidate to represent them. But then the kind of the second level of lesson is around the voter base. And I think the Liberal Party has known for some time that there is a gender gap in its voters uh, and that women have have for some time now uh, been voting more progressively. I think that the Liberal Party made a calculated decision that it didn't really need to worry about this voter base loss, the deficit that was happening, that they would have enough votes from men to cancel out that gender gap. I think they also learned that was um, a big mistake. Mm, the maths don't quite add up, do they, if you only go for half of the population? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, I think obviously, I mean, maybe there are some preferences in there too, right? So they're not all of those votes don't have the same weighting maybe. And clearly that's something that they need to look at more substantively. Um, Mm. in the next three years. I also just wanted to add there that I I think it was interesting seeing how voters voted strategically. So there was a lot of um, discussion about how Labor's primary vote was so low, but I think especially in those independent electorates, it captured, first of all, the, the disillusioned and dissatisfied traditional Liberal voters, who many of which were women who felt like they were ignored, but then also those on the more progressive side, including young people, who realised that they should also be backing these independents and were also excited by what they had to offer. So it was an interesting segment that was kind of seen as maybe like centre-left or centre-right that actually was captured in these independents and people, you know, moved behind them as seen by the hundreds and hundreds of volunteers in Teal that we saw on election night. Yeah, it's not an angry vote. It's a vote for change and it's a vote for hope, one feels, particularly in those electorates. Yasmin, maybe we could talk about the seat of Fowler. Despite winning majority government, the ALP, of course, suffered their own loss at the election, particularly in the seat of Fowler, where Christina Keneally had a massive 16% swing against her and lost to a a community-backed independent. The ALP was criticised for parachuting Keneally into the culturally and linguistically diverse electorate as part of a factional deal with the former New South Wales Premier chosen over lawyer to Lee. What lessons does this example hold about local communities' expectations about their political representation? And do you think the selection will represent a shift in attitudes? I think it shows that voters hate politicking. (laughs) They hate seeing the way that um, politics becomes the the means and the the aim, I suppose, rather than actually what are you going to do for the community. Um, I, I think Fowler took nearly everyone, Diley herself included, she said she felt like she was in a David and Goliath battle by surprise, but um, it goes back to the fact that voters are listening very carefully about what parties do, not just say. So beyond what values are claimed, well, what are you actually going to do for me? 
And I think it also comes, you know, back to we can't take voters for granted. It is very possible in every electorate that an independent who is switched on to what the general public is wanting, is a local, has lived there for years, could easily raise their hand. So it, it puts even more um, incentive for major parties to pick someone who actually represents that community. And, you know, I think in the interest of democracy, that is the right thing to do. I think this is where we see how the machine can almost eat itself and and actually it seems like, you know, I guess to, to Labor they felt like they had no other choice. But looking back now, the other choice had to had to be done in the sense that the voters made the choice because Labor had made its own choice, if, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I, I certainly think that was a protest vote for sure and um, the way that communities can mobilise against it was was pretty incredible. Mm. So there are opportunities there for learning, I think, for both sides of politics from this election experience. Sonia, if we move back in time a little to focus on some of the issues that have emerged in Parliament over the last couple of years, in the wake of a whole series of allegations of bullying, sexual harassment, assault and rape emerging from Parliament, the former government instigated an independent review into the parliamentary workplaces led by Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins. Could you give us an overview of what that review found? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I think that the report represents the outpouring of a substantial amount of trauma that has occurred uh, in the parliamentary workplaces. And I think it's really important to recognise the um, outpouring. If we if we remember that the review collected 1,700 pieces of evidence, whether through focus group discussions, submissions, interviews with members of parliament, with members of staff, both from the parliamentary departments and from the political parties. It, I think it represents a moment, a reckoning, I think that's been used quite frequently and suggests that 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 level of trauma and discomfort and level of unsafety and disrespect um, that occurs not just of women but predominantly of women um, and for women is a real moment to see change. The, The report from the Sex Discrimination Commissioner and the very impressive team behind her recognised that I think it's one in three women have uh, suffered some kind of sexual harassment um, or sexual assault, that bullying occurs of both men and women in that workplace, that those though, that kind of prevalence of, of unsafety and disrespect is driven by a workplace culture that um, rec- that kind of rewards bad behaviour, power differentials and um, a kind of, you know, any, uh, the bad behaviour that rewards the parties. So this kind of win-at-all-costs mentality means that it's okay as long as you're doing some kind of good, whether it's political, policy, good for the party. Um, the... The review made 28 recommendations that go to issues of uh, around a code of conduct, around better staffing provisions, particularly for the staff of members of parliament who are currently in a kind of a, an unprecedented limbo. They're, they're there at the whim of their um, political masters. Um, but the review also recommended much better culture that would be driven by better leadership from across the parliament and the parliamentary departments, uh, and that includes a stronger representation of people from all walks of life and, and from all kinds of intersectionalities. 
So it's important, the sort of the modelling that I guess that's provided within the parliament, and I guess this new uh, government that's been elected or the new parliament uh, that we're seeing begin to take shape here in Canberra might give us an opportunity to see some of those uh, the Jenkins review recommendations take place. What do you think is the key elements to success for implementing the recommendations from the Jenkins review? Well, the, the very kind of quick response to that, Greta, is political will. So I don't really believe that it's more women that will see the change. I think it needs to be recognised from the leadership and and I would hope, to be perfectly honest with you, the leadership of all parts of the parliament, um, that they fully implement all 28 recommendations. I will say that some of those recommendations require the parliament to figure out the best solution. So, for example, there are recommendations around well-being and better work practices, and some of those might be in relation to changing the rules of parliament, the standing orders around when it meets, what time it meets, how it how it schedules its business. Everyone knows that Parliament House has truly appalling work hours, particularly the Senate, which is prone to sitting until midnight. It's not an efficient way of working. It's definitely not conducive to good behaviour. It's definitely a problem because people do drink in the workplace and then, of course, there are consequences for that. So those kinds of things have to be worked out by the parliament itself uh, and there is still room to do that well. I haven't, I haven't really seen shifts there yet. So perhaps with that that moment and that glimmer of optimism for our new parliament and the way in which they might tackle those extraordinary uh, recommendations from the Jenkins Review, we might just take a short break here and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm still here with Sonia Palmieri and Yasmin Poole talking about women in politics and gender equality and reflecting, I think, on some of the moments of hope that we see from the most recent federal election here in Australia. Before the break, we were talking about the success of women candidates in the federal election and we discussed the Jenkins Review into Parliamentary Workplaces. Yasmin, you're an international ambassador at Plan International, and in 2021, that organisation surveyed more than 1,000 Australian women aged 18 to 24, asking them about the key barriers to entering politics. Could you tell us what was found with that survey? Well, it was um, both surprising and not surprising, but it found that for first-time voters aged 18 to 24, young women, um, only one in 10 believe that parliament is safe. 75% believe that women are not treated the same as men in politics. And those numbers are actually even worse for those coming from diverse groups, so culturally and linguistically diverse, young women with disability, um, and also queer young Australians as well. So, um, you know, I think what it confirmed is that young people are looking at politics and realising that the treatment across gender and also across race and those from other backgrounds is not equal. And a feeling of disillusionment after seeing the events of last year and the inaction towards remedying everything that had happened around survivors stepping forward. So um, 
yeah, I think a, I think a real level of clear frustration, but also seeing the system as it is very clearly um, across young women. Mm. I remember trying to process the anger that was so palpable at the March for Justice here in Canberra last year. Uh, and, and I am beginning to wonder whether there are elements of this most recent election that act as an antidote to some of that anger. I wonder, Yasmin, what impact do you think the success of women candidates in the most recent election might have on young women's aspiration to enter politics? W- would you hope that perhaps the survey done in the future has a different result? Well, firstly, maybe it's best. Um, I realised I didn't talk about the recommendations, so I might oh, quickly jump back there. Please, to, that'd be great. Yeah, but um, so in terms of the the report, what it recommended first was um, an implementation of the set the standard report and and all of the recommendations within that. But it also called for targets, not just gender, but also across um, culturally and linguistically diverse communities, because. What that survey was also showing is that it goes beyond gender. Um, It's also important to have that wider diversity. So, you know, while we have had these wins, it's creating that foundation, that that safety net, if you will, for diversity across the political spectrum because it shouldn't be a left or a right thing to have diversity, but all parties should be representing what the community truly looks like. Um, and, and finally, what it was calling for is accountability so that all parties commit to introducing mechanisms to report back to survivors on the implementation of the set the standard recommendations. So giving that, that giving the power back to survivors um, who step forward. So those were the recommendations um, proposed by plan. What I do think that the diversity achieved in this election will do is that it shows young women that change is happening. And I think what we had seen with the previous government who was in power for so long is that it it felt really difficult to find hope because so often the voices of young women, first of all, wasn't even reflected in parliament. And to be honest, I think age is still something that we don't see. We don't see young women in politics. I'd, I'd love to see that happen because youth is not just, you know, youth is another way of seeing the world, so that's really important. Um, But I do think it it provides that optimism. What I do think needs to happen next, though, because we can't just rely on hope, is first of all the systemic um, change, and that was through the recommendations that Plan put forward and the discussion that we were having to make sure that sexual harassment and abuse doesn't happen in Parliament. And also, you know, also in terms of the treatment of female politicians, especially those um, who are diverse, such as women of colour, has Australia learnt the lessons of the past when it comes to Julia Gillard or even Yasmin Abdel-Majid? Have we matured as a nation to be able to move past that discrimination? I really hope that we have. But if we don't and if the media machine uses the same clickbait tactics, um, that might just be something that could harm young women's aspirations again. So I hope we've learned. Hmm. Sonia, how do the findings of the surveys like this one done by Plan International stack up against what you found in your research on parliaments in the region and around the world? Well, uh, I think Yasmin's report and Plan's report is, as she said, not surprising. So I think that that the the idea that young people are reluctant to run, to engage in formal political processes, I think that's that's a piece of research that kind of mirrors others elsewhere. And the Interparliamentary Union, I think in the last um, 10 years or so, has really ramped up its youth and MP platforms and programs. And so that's been a really, I think, important new journey, new kind of thing for international organisations to recognise the importance and I think the distinctive voice of young people in in formal political processes because I think leaving them out is problematic for our democracies. But I want to go back to something that Yasmin said about the media machine, which I think is a really important point. And certainly if we do want to engage more young people, we really need to broaden, I think, um, our engagement with media and different kinds of media. Definitely something that I've learned in the last uh, six months while I've, I've been doing a little bit more media around the Jenkins report. And I, I've certainly been reflecting on the 
young women who are making space for these issues in their media outlets. And I get a lot of requests, you know, from a really broad range of media outlets, um, some of which I have to confess I've never heard of before, but they're all young women who want to keep talking about the, I guess, the treatment, the mistreatment of women in politics. And I think they are themselves searching because I think that there's always a really interesting relationship between the media and politics. And so I think they're searching for ways in which they can make the political game uh, more relevant and more accessible. And certainly a space where they feel more comfortable engaging. I think that's really important and I I always say to them, please keep these issues alive, please um, engage and and always come and have a chat because I, I certainly would like to see that youth aspect. I mean, I'm old enough now to remember Natasha Stott-Despoia as, as a kind of a youth flag bearer um, and and when I was younger and, and she was there in in her amazing Doc Martens, that meant something. She was very much um, a solo flag bearer, but she made waves and um, she was she was always so impressive and she made a huge contribution to that institution. Absolutely. That's two two really amazingly inspiring examples there, Sonia. One of diversity in media and two, I have to say, I was also influenced by watching Natasha Stott Despoir in her Doc Martens when I was younger. Um, I did want to ask you both about ma- the mainstream media and the role that the media plays in our representation of diversity in politics. And it strikes me that there are parts of our media landscape which have 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 developed a, a nuanced approach to the rise of the independents and an increasing uh, representation of diversity in our politics, but that there are other parts of the media which are really struggling to see past the standard two-party model of political representation. And, and I wonder if that that impacts on how they can represent diversity and gender issues. What do you both think about this? Do you, do you think our media is coping with gender and diversity in politics? Um, and, and how do the independents play into that? Perhaps I'll start with you, Sonia. I think in addition to the wonderful young women who have been taking on these issues of gender politics, I think it's also worth recognising that we now in Australia are um, that that politics is covered by incredibly experienced women journalists. I'm thinking of Laura Tingle, Lee Sales, Annabelle Crabb, Jacqueline Maley, Catherine Murphy. Um, I, I mean. Um, Karen Middleton, Nikki Sava, these are women who have a voice, have a very strong voice, and all of them have made this a huge issue. So I think for all of the the right-wing media that we have, um, and and even if you think about on the right-wing side, the, the kind of the Sky News, the Peter Credlins, these are women who have managed to carve out legitimate spaces for themselves in mainstream media. That's no small feat. And if you think about, you know, 20 years ago, that certainly wasn't the case. So, I mean, there is a lot to be said for the echo chambers of the way in which we listen to media and, sorry, lest we forget, uh, Patricia Carvelis and Frank Kelly on, on the radio. Um, you know, they, these are women who have the ear of Australian society. I, I really cannot um, underestimate, I think we can't underestimate the role that legitimate women of huge experience are bringing the news to us every day. That's That's something that did not occur 20 years ago, and they aren't afraid to raise gender issues. Yasmin, what are your thoughts on media representation of diversity in politics? Well, I think the litmus test is what happens when we dislike a politician. What kind of attacks happen? Do they become gendered or are they based on you know, policy and and actually what the politician has done. Because I saw something interesting during COVID when back when Gladys Berejiklian was Premier, I opened TikTok and all across my feed were videos making fun of her appearance, making fun of her voice. And I thought to myself, 
why haven't we learned the lessons with Julie Gillard? And I think it's fantastic that we have more women in journalism. And I think as a society, I do believe we've developed, uh, you know, a greater awareness of sexism and how that plays out. But I do worry that because of social media and the way that it amplifies emotions, this is how companies make money um, through holding views and clicks, the way that it amplifies that, what becomes amplified and what becomes normalized, because if it appears on your feed, just by itself, you don't go searching for it. It looks natural and it looks fine and you don't have to go further and think about whether it does continue and legitimize discrimination. So I certainly think we've made advances, but and I do think traditional media still has a role to play in terms of what messages and what information it chooses chooses to share and what it focuses on. And, you know, this isn't now about discrimination. I mentioned before, though, how the election coverage largely didn't focus on climate change, and that's where voters were voting. So I, I think um, it, it's also up to traditional media to report things factually and accurately and not rely on the emotions. But also social media will always be there, and it always will be a concern, um, just like it is not just about politics but wider society about how we treat and view different groups. Mm. Maybe we'll move to gender equality in Australia more broadly now, where there are countless examples of where Australia needs more gender-sensitive policymaking, from issues around childcare, the gender pay gap, women's safety, etc. I'm really interested in hearing from both of you thoughts on whether increased gender diversity, particularly in Cabinet, will automatically lead to more gender-sensitive policymaking, or is it about more than just representation? Well, it's always a good thing to have people with lived experience in politics. But, and this goes, you know, one example is actually once I was I was in a group and I was chosen to represent um, young women and I was also a diverse woman. And I was the only person that looked like me, which made it a lot harder to raise those issues. What would have improved that is if we already had a structure to guide us through making decisions that would have supported diverse groups. So the same thing goes for politics, is that it's a lot easier to add things like a gender lens or an intersectional lens if the party is supporting that rather than in an ad hoc way. So something that I'm really supportive of is actually using intersectionality, so going beyond gender. When thinking about, I guess, questioning what do we mean if we talk about, let's say, Australians, who is coming to mind what are their needs and who is actually missing from those considerations? So I think having a diverse group is is really, really helpful. But having the questions and having a, an intersectional framework at the start, for example, you know, how are people from different races going to experience this policy? What about different class? What about age? What are the different barriers that they might experience? Even asking those questions is really powerful. And I remember looking at the budget statement back when there was the previous government and looking at their women's, uh, how the budget will support women, they issue that every single budget. And I saw one mention of culturally diverse women in one section about domestic violence. But when it came to employment, there was no mention of diversity. And I thought, well, why is this, you know, sprinkled in one section and not in the other? So it goes to show the need for that intersectional framework consistently. Um, and I certainly think gender lens is one part of the conversation, but um, there's so many different ways to extend it. You know, women, it's not just about childcare. We could talk about First Nations women in, in incarceration. We could talk about um, the way that migrant women are experiencing violence or employment barriers. These are all real issues, but let's put it into the structural considerations. And that's when I think we'll see the really powerful intersectional decisions coming through. Mm, that's a really compelling argument for intersectional framework. Sonia, what are your thoughts? Do you think that the increased diversity in Cabinet will make a difference to how decisions are made? Well, today I looked at the shadow Cabinet um, and I made this really interesting discovery that of the 10 women that uh, the new leader of the opposition has included in his Cabinet, seven are matched with a woman in the cabinet, in the government's cabinet. So for me that's interesting because it it kind of will give people um, this impression that issues like home affairs, finance, communications, infrastructure, resources, water, these are all now women's issues because it will be women 
who talk to each other um, across the chamber on those kinds of issues that keep each other accountable. Now, I'm not suggesting that these are, I don't actually think that these are women's issues. I think that these are, of course, important issues that everyone can can talk about. But it does also mean that we are going to move into a new phase of looking at the way in which decisions are made but also who makes those decisions. And that's really important, the kind of the diversity of the portfolios that women have um, been given in, in, on both sides of the chamber represent a lot more diversity and a move away from the traditional education, women's affairs, things like that. Obviously, we do still have ministers for women on both sides, of course. Um, but I think, you know, if you think about the the kind of the diversity of those portfolios, this is a really important shift. And I don't know whether on both sides of the House, both parties have specifically chosen these portfolios for women to, to move our conversation to a more progressive, more inclusive understanding of decision-making. Whether or not they have, I really can't say, but I really like I like where we're going. I've been looking at gender-sensitive parliaments and diversity-sensitive parliaments for about 12 years now, and one thing that's clear is that it's often mistaken for just a question of numbers, and that's not just in Australia. That happens everywhere. I think what what Australia is really missing is a discussion around the tools and the mechanisms required to ensure that our policies, programs, legislation are gender sensitive. So we don't have those mechanisms in place. We do not have um, gender sensitive or gender impact analyses of, of legislation. We don't have committee systems that are required to take a gender or diversity-sensitive lens um, in any kind of review of inquiries or bills. So uh, there's a lot of work that Australia can learn from the international parliamentary community. And, in fact, I've been doing some research in uh, Fiji. Fiji has a standing order that requires its uh, standing committees to look at the principle of gender equality in in all of their work. Now, um, Fiji is a vastly different democracy to Australia, but the fact that it's required to do that means that its MPs and its parliamentary staff actually do spend some time trying to figure it out. We don't do that at all yet. Both the two of you have just provided us with some quite remarkable ideas about how this parliament could be more successful. We've been talking about gender and other types of diversity in Australian politics today, and in some way there's been an expectation of a kind of snowball effect whereby the success of women candidates in this election might lead to greater diversity in the future and that perhaps this parliament will be the beginning of something significant in terms of change. But we know that that's not always the case. Australia's first female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, was subject to a whole range of sexist attacks from both within and outside of Parliament during her time in office. It's really quite extraordinary to go back over what we tolerated when she was in, in office. In the nine years since, Australia's now had four male Prime Ministers, but no more women. I think today we've had a decent amount of optimism through the show, but my question to you both at this point is, will it be different for the next woman who becomes Prime Minister? And if not, what does Australia need to do to ensure that Prime Minister Gillard's experience isn't repeated? It won't be the same. I think depending on the context that we're in, it will always be a little bit different, but there will be new and unique challenges. So I mentioned things like social media, the way that that often amplifies misogyny and other forms of discrimination, the Australian public's tendency to quickly turn on the Prime Minister and um, what will that hatred and anger end up justifying. So there will always be those challenges, but at the same time there are the movement of not only last year with Much for Justice, but the way that society is moving, that isn't for nothing. Um, you know, I think more and more people are 
becoming aware of also, you know, what, what misogyny looks like and the importance of, I think, thinking before you speak, you know, at least I'm thinking about younger generations. I remember presenting to a high school and a young woman raised her hand and, and said, you know, how can I listen and amplify, you know, other diverse opinions that I haven't experienced. So there is this empathy and this desire to have more diversity. But I think I think the, the turning point and what I was talking about before is when we dislike someone, where do we go? And as a society, where do we say no? But I do think and I'm optimistic that we will have a female prime minister. We'll have plenty more female prime ministers. I would love to see a woman of colour. I would love to see a First Nations prime minister. I think both of those things would be a powerful point of maturity for this country. So I don't think it should just end at, you know, a a woman. There's also so many other diversities that we can talk about here. Um, So there will always be the challenges. But I, I think the result of today and also the way that the world is moving it does mean good things overall for diversity, not only in politics but in society too. And I, as an optimist, I always believed that despite the challenges that we'll face every step of the way, change does happen. And I think, you know, this election is a product of that. Sonia, what are your thoughts? I was working in the parliament as parliamentary staff when Julia Gillard was the prime minister and I absolutely bawled my eyes out the day she was ousted. And I think part of that was in recognition of her incredible achievements. I think Julia Gillard will always go down in history as having achieved monumental policy change in extremely difficult parliamentary circumstances. Uh, And the fact that she was able to do that while also being lambasted and ridiculed and um, hurled the most disgusting kind of uh, sexist remarks is, is really quite remarkable. So she's obviously someone I admire greatly. I think the really important lesson here is that it's not it, it really should not just be up to it should never have just been up to her to call out that sexism and misogyny even though when she did it you know quite late in her prime ministership she did it incredibly eloquently and with great impact and and and, and oomph but that the calling it out should have been earlier and it should have come from Um, many, many more around her, including men. So the standard that the the people around her accepted and that she thought, and she's gone on the record as having said that she thought it was just going to be a moment in time and then we'd all get over it, I think it it really does uncover that ultimately Australian society does still have very strong elements of sexism but that to address that we should not simply rely on the person to which it really affects the most Um, so it really needed to have been a collective response Um, I hope that that is a lesson that either major party or or um you know, kind of group responsible (laughs) for putting a woman in that situation accepts responsibility for. I have to say I could speak to the two of you for quite a lot longer about this subject and and I would very much hope that we could speak again at some point in the next year or so as this particular parliament evolves. But we like to finish the show by asking both of you to reflect perhaps one key piece of advice that you'd like to give to our new Australian parliament on ensuring political representation has the diversity and complexity that is truly representative of the Australian community. Sonia? That's a great question, Anna Greta. Thank you. Um, I was asked recently on a, a similar kind of panel, how can how can parliaments be more gender sensitive? And my response was really just practice. Like they actually have to do it. Um, I, I would like to see those mechanisms and tools that I was talking about before designed by the parliament and then implemented and then reviewed and monitored and evaluated um, and audited and then the cycle continues. 
Yasmin, one key piece of advice. The key word is intersectionality. So if the government wants to do something around gender equality, to think about beyond gender how diverse women are experiencing issues and the same goes across all other areas of equality. How are different groups interacting with this system and what are the barriers that they might face? And, you know, actually if we talk about that word, using that cabinet or politicians that do that are diverse and do have those different lived experiences, also giving them a platform to also talk to the public and represent those interests who might otherwise be heard, that will be really powerful. So I think if we move beyond simply focusing on gender and the way rather how diverse communities are experiencing these problems, I'd be really excited and really empowered to see that kind of language in politics. Well, thank you so much to Sonia Palmieri and Yasmin Paul for an inspiring discussion today. Very much grateful for the time that you've given us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Today's discussion about women in Parliament, the role of gender diversity and representational diversity in Australian politics, to me, has been inspirational. I am struck as we record this podcast on a weekly basis that the optimism we feel now has such stark contrast to even just a few months ago where it felt like change was so difficult. There is something significant that's taken place in the Australian political landscape with the results of this election, and a big part of that is a diverse representation, particularly beginning on gender equity. And so, personally, I have found today's discussion to be quite remarkable. The concepts of intersectional frameworks are ones that we will come back to, and I look forward to watching Yasmin's work on this as she departs for Oxford later this year. Policy Forum pod is, of course, produced by policyforum.net, and we'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show there. We are, of course, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. If you're interested in our degree programs and short courses, you can find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. If you or someone you know has been impacted by sexual assault, family or domestic violence, call 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or visit www.1800respect.org.au. In an emergency, you can call 000 and we will leave those details in our show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. You know that we're always interested in feedback and you can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net or you can join the Policy Forum Facebook group. From me, Anna Hunter, I look very much forward to discussing the content of today's show with Sharon Bessel as we begin next week's episode and I look forward to seeing you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 